The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up and I've already made around two, three hundred dollars. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. The Lakers Legacy Podcast episode you're about to listen to is brought to you by the Fansided Sports Network, the ultimate home for fans. And by lakeshowlife.com, Fansided's official Lakers website. As usual, please follow us on Twitter at Lakers Legacy Pod, and also please consider dropping us a five star rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. It truly is the best way to support us. And now, on with the showtime. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Lakers Legacy Podcast, where it's that time of the offseason again. Body fat percentage, lean muscle, and gains time. And luckily for the Lakers, THT is proving that orange is the new lack of fat. I'm your host, Jonathan Hernandez. I am joined by my co-host, Tommy Alexander. Tommy, how's the offseason going for you? And have you... Tried Jollibees yet? Um, off season's going great. I have tried Jollibee. They opened one near my house not too long ago, and, and it thoughts? was pretty. It was solid. I, I will say the chicken is very good. Mm-hmm. I got the spaghetti as the side, which I thought was just okay. Okay. Um, because it's. I mean, everyone warned me about this, right? Like, it's like not. I knew it wasn't going to be like, you know, like real Italians. I understand it's a Filipino restaurant, right? But it, it like, so people warned me that like the sauce is different. It's like sweeter. It yeah. is like very sweet sauce. Is, and I don't yeah. know if I'm just getting older, but I was like, I can't, I could barely eat any of it. It was like so sweet. It just t- it tasted like I was just chugging a Coke. Like that's how much sugar was in that <laughs> sauce. 
Yeah, so I, you know, being Filipino myself, I grew up with that type of spaghetti, so I'm used to it. It's very hit or miss with people. So if you're used to the sweetness, it's a good complement to the chicken, which I think the breading is, I personally like it better than KFC, which is a little bit too peppery for my taste, even though I like yeah. a good KFC bucket. But I think the thing with Jollibee is that tops off their fried chicken is you ate it with the gravy, right? The gravy sauce? Yeah. Okay, so for me, that's what that like those complementing each other make the meal for me. And then I don't know if you did this, but we also have I, I say we like, you know, I'm part of the Jollibee's Corporation. But I guess <laughs> just being Filipino, I have to say we. But we also have the the this uh, peach pie cobbler. I'm not sure if you got that. Uh, I saw it on the menu, but I didn't try it. But uh, I heard from you on. and others that it's very good. Okay, so you got to try that. And then seasonally, they do have an ube version of that. So yeah, yeah. the ube version is pretty good, too. And as everybody knows, ube is the new matcha. Orange is the new black. Well, enough about Jollibees. Let's talk about a lack of Jolly Ds, as in Jolly Defense. Ah, uh, that was a weird transition. <laughs> I wasn't sure where you were going with that. <laughs> I wasn't sure either. Okay, so while the Lakers may have lost some of their best and most versatile defenders... I think they did gain tremendous offensive versatility in return while bringing back a key anchor of their defensive front line in Dwight Howard from the 2019-20 championship season. So with the Lakers free agent signings now in full view for the most part, Tommy, my icebreaker question to you outside of Jollibee's talk is, who would you have as your most important Lakers free agent signing at this point? Most important. So this is not including the Russell Westbrook trade because Russell right, Westbrook right. is important, but who would be your number one if you had to if you had to pick? And you can quickly <sighs> slip so... you can quickly slip in a number two guy if you want to cheat, but who is your number one? All right, I'm gonna have to cheat. Uh. But my, so, <laughs> my number one I think is I'm pretty sure is gonna be different than your number one. Um I I really think the most important guy we signed was Dwight Howard. I, you know, over an 82-game yeah. season, I think it doesn't matter. I, I understand 80 is going to play more four this year. He played 60 minutes of his uh, – 60% of his minutes at the four in 2019. He played ten only 10% of his minutes at the four last year, and I think it was a huge difference, right? And I think last year, you know, injuries, roster composition, personal preference all made a big difference, right? I think, yes, he's agreed to – probably play more five this year and he will probably get closer to his 2019 and, and prior numbers in terms of percentage breakdown between four and five. Um, but he is going to play still a good amount of four over an 82 game season. And because of that, being able to throw out a guy like Dwight, who is so elite defensively, I mean, between Dwight and Marcus all, we probably have, I mean, not, it, it, I shouldn't say probably. We definitely have the two best bench uh, big men defenders in the entire league. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly on the same roster, right? And and maybe and certainly each of those guys individually is probably top five in terms of bench big men def, uh, defenders, right? So I, I think Dwight, unlike Mark, Mark obviously has his uh, perks. He's a better playmaker. You know, he. Um, he can shoot the three and, and, and there's certain things he does a little bit better. You could actually throw it to him in the post and he's somewhat of a threat, although he's a little bit past that point at this stage in his career. Uh, Dwight brings back the lob threat that we were like sorely missing last year. He brings back 
the toughness off the bench, uh, the size off the bench that we were lacking with Montrez and, and, you know, our Montrez Marquise lineup, um, that came off the bench last year. The big, big thing though with him is he's still a big man, but he has the ability to somewhat defend in space as, where mm-hmm. Mark has no ability to do that at all. So it fills a huge void where AD sits and we need some big man out there. And if you look at the rest of our bigs, I mean, like, we're asking Carmelo to play. I mean, Carmelo has been playing four for, like, the last four years, to be clear. But we're asking him to be our primary backup four in some respects, depending on who starts. AD is going to get some minutes there. LeBron's going to get some. I mean, it's like we're not, like, playing a ton of, besides AD, a ton of guys who are known for their defensive abilities at the floor. So having a center like Dwight to be able to clean up a lot of mistakes, I think is, is going to be so huge. So I, I'm going to stick with that. I feel confident in it. <laughs> that's okay. my, uh, nice. that's, that's okay. my most important signing. Who would be your cheater? Number two, uh, guy my cheater. Number two, I think would probably be, uh, Kendrick Nunn. Um, okay. Kendrick Nunn, I think is going to off the bench, complement THT a lot better than the guards that we had last year did. THT has stuff that he does very, very, very well at this stage in his career as like a 21 year old or however old he is. Like we can't necessarily rely on that dude to be the primary playmaker and, uh, and, uh, ball handler, especially in crunch time in, in situations where defense ramps up and physicality ramps up just because of his relative inexperience and frankly, lack of skill in those areas. Like he's a very good ball handler getting to the rim and doing certain things, not necessarily bringing the ball up the floor and initiating your offense, which I think are two slightly different things. Right. So I think none fills a big void. And I think he next to THT is going to look a lot more fluid and seamless than Schroeder look next to THT. Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, I honestly changed my mind about this on okay. the daily just because, and I guess that lends to my personal excitement about this team and the crop of guys that we signed. But when I did this with Allen, I had at that time my number one, and I guess currently it's it's the same, but it's it's uh, maybe shifting a little bit, but when I did this with Allen, I had at number one Ariza slash Bazemore, whichever one will hold up for the whole 82-game season. Okay. And I think Ariza number one, just because without Ariza, we really don't have that six foot nine, seven foot two wingspan traditional wing stopper guy. And I understand that it's very risky having Ariza there at your number one, given that you're not sure if he can hold up for you know, the full 82 games, even though with Miami, he played like 29 minutes a game. But having said that, he only played like 25 games because he sat half of the season just waiting for a trade to happen. But that could actually maybe lend to our favor because he didn't play a full 82 games, you know, so hopefully he's a little bit more refreshed than he was even last year. But having said that, until we see another guy take his spot as that primary wing defender in terms of height and length. And you know how many times have we talked about over the last few years, no matter how good a defender KCP is, no matter how good a defender Caruso or Wes Matthews is, that they're just short, you know? Right. I mean, we need a guy to stick on Kawhi Leonard, not Kawhi Leonard, but, you know, because he's going to be injured for most of the season. But we need a guy to stick on the Paul Georges, Jason Tatums, Luka Doncic's of the world. And Ariza gives you that guy 
who can just bother people with his, whether it's his long wingspan or even just his height. So I think I still have him marginally as my number one, you know, him slash Kent Bazemore. Um, And yeah, I guess I'll stick with that. Although, you know, none is definitely pushing towards that number two spot. Even though when I talked to Alan, I did have Dwight Howard at number two as well. Almost for the same reasons why I put Trevor Ariza at number one, because he is our only wing perimeter defender. And then with Dwight, it's like, well, he's really our only, you know, true center who can still do it for 82 games and really be Anthony Davis's center buffer. Because you're not going to rely on Marcus All at this point to do that consistently. Right. And we're also not even sure if Marcus Gasol truly is going to return next season, according to a new report by Mark Stein. So if that's the case, then Dwight Howard really does shoot up to the top right, right. as our only other seven-foot center besides Anthony Davis, who is just transitioning into playing more center. So, yeah. All right, moving on. Before we get to the focus of today's episode regarding the Lakers' hard shift towards more offensive power and how that might affect their overall defensive identity moving forward, there are a couple of quick new Lakers updates I wanted to touch upon. The first being the Lakers' full schedule came out. Of more substance to the entirety of the season is the fact that the Lakers have a really heavy home schedule to begin the season with only three of their first 15 games on the road. That is pretty insane. For a team that's been upended entirely and thrown together on the fly, getting that added benefit of being able to work on all of their chemistry in the safe confines of Los Angeles and not having to deal with any of that arduous travel and back and forth should hopefully pay dividends for the Lakers for the rest of the season. So hopefully by the time they hit any rough patches in their schedule, they'll already have some momentum going as a team to weather those bumps in the road. And they'll definitely need it, and they'll definitely need to be firing on all cylinders because by mid-March, by the time they hit mid-March, 10 of their last 14 games are going to be on the road. So there's that payback for the uh, home-heavy early start. So we'll we'll see how things shake out. The other big update, Tommy, that I wanted to get your thoughts on is the Lakers' final two or three roster spots. From what we've learned recently from Chris Haynes, the Lakers plan to fill out two more roster spots with a third point guard and possibly another wing or combo big man, but that they want to keep their 15th roster spot free heading into training camp, which also likely signals that Jared Dudley's time as a Lakers player is over. Uh, The Lakers have also shown some interest reportedly in guys like Tim Frazier and Jakar Sampson. Frazier is a small, unathletic point guard who can moderately pass and who's played with Anthony Davis a little bit in New Orleans, so he has some chemistry with uh, Anthony Davis there. Jakar Sampson has bounced around the league a lot and most famously dropped 20 points on us in May last season. (laughs) He's a 6'6 wing with a 7-foot wingspan, but he can't do much but run the floor, offensively rebound a little bit, and dunk in space. And I don't think he's even that great of a finisher. So these guys are not that talented, and it's a little bit perplexing why the Lakers are even looking at players like this. (laughs) For me, the only reason why I think the Lakers are looking at mediocre talents like Tim Frazier and Jakar Sampson is because these sound like the guys who would take on non-guaranteed contracts. And I think for the Lakers, that's the most important thing for them, making sure that they have two or three revolving roster spots that are flexible and that they can easily rotate out in the event that 
any other solid vets are bought out before training camp or throughout the season. So if there are guys that are willing to take on non-guaranteed contracts, kind of like what Quinn Cook did last year, I believe, I think the Lakers may prioritize that over straight-on talent, uh, for better or for worse. Um, With regards to the Lakers prioritizing a third-point guard for one of their roster spots and not only being interested in a guy like Tim Frazier, uh, they actually worked out guys like Isaiah Thomas, Darren Collison, and Mike James. So, Tommy, what are your quick thoughts on that somewhat surprising angle of the Lakers wanting another point guard in spite of the fact that they already have a glut of 6-3 and below combo guards who can all primary create in some form or fashion. Are you surprised by that at all? I'm not that surprised. You know, maybe some could look at it as like an overreaction to what happened last season with our roster. I don't think we're going to need this person. And hopefully LeBron and Westbrook stay healthy over the course of a season. But I mean, we're in the 13, 14, 15 spots on our roster, right? So really what we're looking to sign right now is insurance. And, you know, once, let's say one of LeBron or Westbrook goes down and I'm again, knock on wood, I'm literally knock on wood as I say this, (laughs) hopefully that doesn't happen, but 82 games, a long time, 10 games of that is a significant chunk of time to be out. Right. So, and guys go out for 10 games all the time. So you know, if a guy, one of those two guys goes down for a stretch of 10 games, once you get past AD and LeBron, or excuse me, uh, LeBron and Westbrook, are our other role players better ball handlers and can do more things than guys we've had in the past? Sure. But in terms of a true ball handler, playmaker type who can go get his own shot, I mean, you're looking at maybe an unproven, somewhat unproven Kendrick Nunn who's 25. And and so I guess that's where I can kind of see why they might look to, you know, as it, it makes more sense actually if Dudley's not going to be on the team, look to fill one of those three spots with a point guard because you can get a point guard, you can still get a wing and you could even still get a big man. So you could really address all three of those needs with those last three spots. So it, it doesn't really surprise me that much. Yeah, and I think if like Westbrook goes down or LeBron goes down, kind of like you intimated, we'd almost be forced into another Dennis Schroeder scenario where you're relying on guys like Nunn, Monk, and Bazemore to try and not only create offense for themselves, but orchestrate and organize an offense for the rest of the team. So I get it. I think the Isaiah Thomas thing is a weird one. I almost feel like it's just a PR play. That feels like a PR play. Well, <laughs> the guy's a great guy. He's had a tough last few years, especially with what happened to his sister and whatnot and what the Celtics right. did to him for sure. But he's not really at this stage, even though I know at his prime he had elite vision, he's still more of a scoring guard, you know? And at that size, right. it seems kind of weird that in the event that Westbrook and LeBron go down, you're like, all right, IT. You run the offense now in case none can't do it, you know? So no, in, that, you. in that scenario, I think I'd put Rondo at the top if and when he gets bought out. Are you in that same sort of line of thinking? I'm in the same boat as you. I think Rondo is such an obvious fit. LeBron loves him. And he's like another coach on the bench, right? So mm-hmm. he serves so many purposes. Yeah, from the familiarity, championship DNA, chemistry with AD standpoint, it's just it makes so much sense. And he's one of the only guys who's not focused on scoring and purely just a playmaker, right? I think you need that on this team where everybody else can score for the most part and create on their own. So, okay, last question on this topic is what about that wing position? Are you on the James Ennis bandwagon? 
I am on the James Ennis bandwagon of the wings available. I think he's probably the best. And again, I, I kind of look at this position as like, there's not a ton of options out there. We need just like a body, you know what I mean? And if you're going to get rid of McKinney, who I actually thought was not bad. And I kind of am mildly surprised if they didn't have like a clear option they were going to go after that. They, they just waived him. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it's cheaper to get somebody else. Um, but you know, it's, I, I think I would probably be uh, on the on the James Ennis bandwagon just because he brings a little bit of size. He he doesn't play that much. He's not going to play that much. He can shoot a, inconsistently, but like a little bit. Um, and he's a little athletic too. I think he's like the more experienced, fully realized version of Alfonso McKinney. You love McKinney for his hustle and whatnot, but I think James Ennis has proved... <laughs> "Quote unquote," proven it a little bit more, and like you mentioned, he is a legit six six with a seven with a six foot eleven foot wingspan, so almost seven foot wingspan. And last season, I know he had career numbers shooting wise, but I'll throw out this stat to you: for players who averaged at least eighteen minutes and played at least twenty games last season, James Ennis actually ranked number ninth, or he ranked ninth in catch and shoot percentage from three point land. Knocking oh, wow. down, knocking down forty-seven point five percent from three, catch and shoot wise. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, again, that's not—he's doing that in an Orlando Magic uniform, not a Lakers uniform. So you have to account for some sort of Lakers three-point curse in there. But I mean, if he's able to translate that over to this year in some capacity, even if it, it's at forty percent catch and shoot from three, that'd be great because again, you're not relying on him for any more than probably you know five to ten minutes, if that. All right, with that said, let's get to the meat of our show, talking about the Lakers' pivot towards more offensive firepower. Uh, Tommy, before we take it to break, I want you to sit back and relax because I'm going to throw some stats out to you that I think will help inform our conversation about the Lakers pivoting towards more offense uh, and whether or not we still have any defense left. But are you ready for this? Yes. All right, here are some intriguing stats, and I want to start off with advanced three-point shooting. We've talked about this a lot over the last few years, and we got so hyped and excited when when we pivoted away from the Lance Stevenson era and we're like, oh, we got Quinn Cook, Jared Dudley, Avery Bradley, Danny Green, all these, you know, 40% three-point shooters on paper. But we quickly realized, like, okay, it's much different being just a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter and a shooter who's a little bit more versatile and can take a dribble or two and relocate on the three-point line and still get that shot off, right? So with regards to our role players, here are our three-point pull-up shooting numbers. So they took at least one or two dribbles before finally hoisting that shot up, okay? Um, Ranking number one on this list is Wayne Ellington. He averaged one three per game in terms of pull-up three-point shooting, which actually surprised me because I thought he was just a straight catch-and-shoot guy. But he actually averaged one three a game, just literally dribbling the ball into a three-point shot. Granted, when I was watching his highlights, it's it's literally just a two-dribble relocation. But I feel like that's still pretty impressive, and it maybe lends to him being more of a friskier three-point shooter than we had expected. So... He hit one three a game on pull-up threes, but also shot the best as well, hitting 49%. (laughs) That That is pretty nuts. That's insane, okay? And then next, number two, we've got Carmelo Anthony, 
who hit 39% on pull-up three-pointers. He averaged 0.6 of these. This is not that surprising because Carmelo, over the course of all of his career, has just been a guy who likes to bobble the ball a little bit, a la Swaggy P, right? So good that he can still shoot 39% off some dribbles into a pull-up. Next, we've got Malik Monk. He hit 37% on pull-up three-point shooting, averaging 0.8 a game. So that's also pretty impressive and lends to Monk being more of a versatile three-point shooter and not just a strict catch-and-shoot. Then we've got Bazemore at 31%, only averaging 0.13s. We've got Nunn at 26%, which is we're starting to get to the lower percentages on pull-up shooting. So Nunn shot 26% on pull-up threes, uh, but he did average 0.4 on these. That's a pretty bad number and a pretty bad average to take. So he should probably cut down on the pull-up threes. Um, And then lastly, we've got Trevor Ariza at 25% on pull-up three-point shooting, and he averaged 0.2. By comparison last year, KCP shot the best percentage of pull-up threes, 42%, but he only averaged 0.2 makes. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it's kind of crazy, the disparity. Like at the bottom of our list here is Ariza at 0.2 and Bazemore at 0.1. And here's KCP, our best three-point shooter, only averaging 0.2 makes with regards to pull-up three-point three point shots, right? And then next we've got THT. He hit 29.6%. That's our next, you know, highest oh. pull-up three-point shooter percentage, okay? And he hit 0.2 as well. Tied at this spot is Wesley Matthews at 29.6% as well, but he only hit 0.13s. Below that is Kuzma, who hit 28.8%, and he actually averaged the most makes with 0.3. So, I mean, just by comparison, Kuz tops our list at 0.3 makes of pull-up three-point shots. With the new guys, we've we've got Wayne Ellington averaging one, Mello at 0.6, Monk at 0.8, Nunn at 0.4, although, again, Monk should probably cut that down. But it's just kind of crazy, the disparity. And I want to add the caveats of, of course, these guys were all in different team situations, whereas our guys were all just on the Lakers. So that probably lends to context, probably lends to all of these guys not even taking those shots. But I think with the new guys that we've kind of culled up here, they just naturally have a higher proclivity of being able to knock down tougher three-point shots off their own dribble. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on those before I move on to the catch and shoot catch and shoot numbers? I think the Wayne one is is crazy in vo- both in terms of volume and in terms of efficiency and, you know, yeah, sure, a, a side dribble two-step relocation is maybe different than a pure pull-up three, but that's still an important skill. You know what I mean? It's like, how often did it feel like last year we we would swing it, swing it, swing it if a guy didn't have exactly a wide open shot that he was probably going to miss anyway? It was just like the play was over. There was no pump faking, take a dribble and and take a shot. I mean, Kuz did it sometimes, but obviously he was not like the most consistent shooter. So, Yeah. And so just to piggyback off that Wayne Ellington thing. So back in 2017-18, his season with Miami, Wayne Ellington actually broke the NBA record previously held by Eric Gordon for most three-pointers made off the bench with 218. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we do have to find minutes for this guy. (laughs) Maybe we do. So he averaged three three three-point makes that year, hitting 39% from three-point land. To this date, he still holds that record off the bench. Uh, Terrence Ross, in the 2018-19 season, almost got to that mark with 
217 made threes off the bench, but he's still second. And then for a more recent comparison, Jordan Clarkson ranks fourth on this list with his most recent Utah outing where he hit 203 203 threes off the bench. But yeah, that's crazy. 218 threes off the bench for Wayne Ellington in a tertiary role, right? So just to show you that Wayne Ellington, even in a limited off-the-bench role, can still find ways to thrive. Obviously, I don't think he's going to hit 218 from three again, but it's just crazy to know, or I guess encouraging to know, that even in a limited role and capacity, he can still knock that shot down. All right, so let's move on to the catch-and-shoot numbers because it's still pretty wildly skewed to these guys. So um, we've got Kendrick Nunn at the top, catch-and-shoot-wise. So he shot 42.1% on catch-and-shoot threes, hitting 1.8 a game. So I'm not sure why this guy was taking so many, you know, pull-up three-point jump shots. This is why I tell him, you know, he should probably cut those down and continue sticking with the catch-and-shoot three-pointers because – 1.8, almost two threes average in that capacity, hitting 42%. Pretty crazy. And then Bazemore is second with 42. Actually, no, Bazemore is first in terms of percentage, 42.2% on catch and shoot threes. That's higher than I would have guessed. He should probably take less (laughs) pull-ups also. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, And he averaged one, one make per game in that category. Although, again, with Bazemore, you almost have to asterisk him because he had an outlier sort of three-point percentage last year. I know he has had like a 39% regular season as well in, in past years, but I guess just, you know, to temper our expectations, Bazemore is a career 35% shooter, so I'm not sure how much you can rely on that. But we've got Bazemore at 42.2%, averaging one a game. None at 42.1%, right below him, averaging 1.8 a game, which, is, which tops our list in terms of three-point catch-and-shoot makes. Then we've got Monk, averaging 1.2 makes at 41.6% crazy. Then we've got Mello at 39%, also average 1.2. Wayne Ellington surprisingly is next at 38%, making 1.5 threes. Again, it's just surprising that this dude shoots way better with a dribble or two, but maybe that makes some sense for for certain shooters, right? He maybe needs that momentum to get him going, but still a decent percentage, 38%, averaging 1.5 catch and shoot makes. And then we've got Ariza at 37%, averaging 1.5. Quickly, you contrast that to last year, and Caruso tops our list at 42% with 0.9 makes, but obviously not a high volume. Then we've got KCP right below him with about 42% as well, 1.5 makes. Then we've got Marcus All, 41.7%, 0.9 makes. Pretty much all his threes came in this capacity. Then Ben McLemore, 41%, 1.9 makes. And then Kyle Kuzma. Yeah, exactly. Then Kyle Kuzma, 37%, 1.8 makes. So even with regards to catch and shoot three-point shooting, in terms of volume and percentage, our guys top all of last year's guys. So I think even accounting for the three-point shooting curse. I just expect us to be a very dynamic and creative perimeter team. What are your thoughts? I'll give you two thoughts. My first one on that list you just gave was, I'm shocked, and I know you caveated this, but I'm shocked that Bazemore's is that high. But I, you know, just strictly by the eye test and watching this dude over the years, it kind of makes sense because my impression of Bazemore has always been from when he was on the Lakers to, you know, he stops after that um, for the, over the last, I guess it's been like seven, eight years at this point, but 
my impression of him has always been his shot selection is horrendous. Like he is not that bad of a shooter. And, and when he makes it, it looks pure. Um, he's got good form. He's got a good stroke, but it does feel, and they, again, I'm heavily biased by these stats you just read, but it does feel <laughs> like a lot of the time when he bricks it, it's him walking into like a very bad shot selection yeah. type of jump shot. Um, and then the second thought, I will say, you know, to further hedge, and this goes away from the, you know, Laker curse angle, the three-point shooting curse angle of this whole thing, right? But we have to also remember that, you know, inevitably a large chunk of our shots on just on our team generally are going to be coming from three guys who are, you know, the best of the three is an, a league average shooter. And that yeah. is naturally going to pull the percentages down. Like Westbrook averages 30%, just about low 30s, 30% his entire career. Problem is he takes like four or five a game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, AD is going to take not a ton, but he'll take two or three and he's barely a 30% shooter. LeBron takes a good, uh, you know, a good volume and is, but he's just a league average shooter. He's not shooting 40, 41% or something, right? He's like league average for his position. So it, it's like, it's, it's hard to know how this is all exactly going to shake out. I will say, as we've seen over the years on many different teams, like three point shooting is kind of contagious. So if one dude, you know, if we're able to get some of our role players going, we have amazing playmakers in LeBron and Russ uh, who can get them looks. So it, it, from there, who knows what's going to happen, right? And and uh, and we'll just have to see how it shakes out. But those are two things that I think we should keep in mind as well. No, I think that's a good point because you take away those shot attempts from these guys who are all in separate situations and they have less volume to gain a rhythm, right? Which you'd imagine because they had so many shot attempts at threes, that's how they were able to get those percentages up, whether it's catch and shoot or pull up three-point shooting. I guess it's just good to know that this is their shooting profile, right? And even if you tick down any of those numbers, we're still probably going to be better than last year's crop, you know? Which I guess is that's not saying too much and probably seems obvious, but I think three-point shooting, again, is going to be such a huge part of why we're leaning more offensive. And, you know, given how this offseason started right after the Russell Westbrook trade, where we're like, man, we're going to need some spacing help to now see the crop of guys that we've assembled... I don't know. I'm excited. Again, I'm going to temper my expectations just because of what we've experienced our whole lives as Lakers fans. But if it doesn't happen this year, Tommy, then it's never going to happen. And maybe it never will. But um, okay. so before we take it to break, to add on to this offensive thing, I have some quick Russell Westbrook mania stats for you. That also lends to like the offensive, you know, game plan and and the, the shift towards the offensive. So for Russell Westbrook, out of all players in the NBA who played at least 18 minutes per game and at least 30 games last year, Russell Westbrook ranks number one in pace with a 107.18 rating over comparable guards like Bradley Beal, his teammate, Steph Curry, D'Lo, Draymond Green, Drew Holiday, LaMelo Ball. So just in terms of that, you know, picking up the pace once again, getting us out into transition. That's going to be awesome. I guess it's no surprise that Russell Westbrook ranks number one in pace. In terms of assist percentage, we have two guys in the overall top five of that list. And again, assist percentage is the percentage of made teammates field goals 
a player assisted on while he was on the floor. So as you'd imagine, Westbrook is at number one with a 48.6% assist percentage. Then you've got Trey Young, James Harden, Luka Doncic, and then LeBron at number five with a 41.8% assist percentage. Also, the Lakers have two of the number one assist guys in the league over the past two seasons on their team. Same guys I just mentioned. LeBron led the league in assists in 2019-20 with 10 a game. Westbrook led the league last year with 11.7 a game. I don't know if you've recently been able to just take a peek at Russell Westbrook's box score, but once you actually sit down to look at the numbers, your eyes just like burst out of your face because they're so <laughs> ridiculous. They're so ridiculous. They look like 2K stats because obviously he averaged a triple double. You know, you kind of throw that away when he's not on your team, but when you actually dissect Westbrook's game and look at his stats, it's just mind boggling. Um, even if we talk about Russell Westbrook when he was with Houston and was accompanied by another primary ball handler and one with high usage at that with James Harden, Westbrook still averaged seven assists a game. And that is actually his lowest total since the 2013-14 season with OKC. So maybe that's a good proxy for what we can expect Russell Westbrook to average with LeBron James by his side, seven to eight assists, which is still pretty crazy. Last crazy stat on Westbrook. This is not, this is actually more skewing defensive, but I just wanted to throw this in here. Russell Westbrook has three seasons with 700-plus rebounds, which is the most seasons with that many total rebounds for a guard 6'3 or shorter. So very impressive stat by Russell Westbrook. He had 750 rebounds last year as a 6'3 guard. So pretty crazy. crazy. Crazy thing about that too, right? And this is the thing that always intrigued me about Zoe, the Zoe-LeBron tandem, right, is like, when you have a guy, you obviously have LeBron, and as he gets older, his game changes a little bit, obviously. But in some ways, he wants to be more of an off-ball guy, right? And I think that's how, or that's why he worked so well with Rondo, especially in the playoffs, right? And why we were like the number one fast break team two years ago. So when you add a guy like Westbrook, who is you just slot him. I'm not saying he's going to average a triple-double on the team. He probably is not playing next to two other stars. He is going to average six or seven rebounds at least, right? And if you have Westbrook grabbing six or seven rebounds and pushing the ball off of these rebounds, like, and LeBron filling the wing, like, how do you defend that, dude? It's going to be, like, so... Like, these, like imagine playing a young team, right? Like, you're playing a rebuilding team um, like the Detroit Pistons, okay? And you have LeBron, you have Westbrook grabbing rebounds and charging at you with a full head of steam and sprinting down on the wing is LeBron James, like 6'8", 225 yep. pounds. Like, it's just going to be so scary. And both yep. of those guys, by the way, individually are among the, you know, top five or so finishers at the rim in the NBA. So, you know, I, I Westbrook has all of his flaws, but you know, that, that are well doc, very well documented, probably over documented. But when you really sit down, like you've done here and really look at the numbers, it's pretty amazing. Some of the things that he's able to do. Yeah. You literally will have two or three freight trains running down in transition at any one time on this Lakers team. So it should be fun to watch. So we'll take it to break and then close our show out. Yeah. Literally talking about more of the Lakers pivot towards the offensive versus the defensive and whether we have enough, all things considered. So Our sponsors first, and then we'll catch you guys after the turn. Hey folks, today's show is brought to you by the marginal writing skills of yours truly, Jonathan Hernandez. 
But did you know that this same Jonathan Hernandez who's speaking to you now is not only a corny, punerific Lakers podcast host, but also a TV writer who works in the entertainment industry as well? Now, I say that not to puff my chest out, but actually to do the exact opposite and grovel, because if you're a showrunner, an exec, or a fellow writer on a current show and are looking for some fresh new voices, well, please consider this quirky Filipino dude with this Lakers podcast who's speaking to you now. I'm pre-WGA, have years of animation production experience, script coordinator experience, I've also written four fully produced freelance animated scripts, and I was also privileged enough to have been named a finalist in the 2021 Universal Animation Writers Program. So for anyone that's looking to take a shot on a novice writer who's just shooting his shot right now in the weirdest way possible, I'd love to set up a general meeting or an informational with you to simply discuss potential opportunities. So please feel free to reach out to jhun247 at gmail.com. So with all that said, now back to the Lakers. Attention listeners across the galaxy. All the way from Australia to Houston, do we have a pube problem? If so, our friends at Manscaped have cleared you for takeoff with their fourth generation and brand new Lawnmower 4.0. Kick your pubes to the next planet with the Performance Package 4.0. The orbits in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity when you use the best tools for the job from the leaders in male grooming. So join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20. So do you guys remember that one time I told you about that one white stray hair I had down there that almost made me pull a hip muscle after I pulled it? No? Well, there you go. And also, that's the last time you'll ever hear about any such hairy situation for me again. Because ever since I started using Manscaped, the white stray hair snipping process for me has been much smoother than ever. So, are you ready for an out-of-world experience, fellas? Look no further than the Performance Package 4.0 from Manscaped that has just taken off in not only the USA, but Canada, the UK, across Europe, Australia, South Africa, and Singapore. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, Crop Preserver ball deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your whole solar system. Abort Harry Balls and Buzz Lightyear that Woody with Manscaped. Man, did I write this? I don't know. Anyways, get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDED20 at manscaped.com. For a clean trinity and beyond, your space balls will thank you. All right, so let's talk about the what this team has done to shift away from their defensive identity and go more towards their go more towards an offensive approach. You know, we've talked about this offline and I've mentioned to you that it feels like we're kind of meeting the Brooklyn Nets more in the middle and shoring up our main deficiency when it comes to our matchup with them and fighting fire with fire. Even even while, you know, losing some of our defensive qualities and some of our best frenetic defenders, even in a matchup against the Brooklyn Nets, we're still the better defensive team by simply having Anthony Davis 
Dwight sure. Howard, and LeBron James in certain situations. The question comes in the form of our perimeter defense and whether we'll just be hemorrhaging from the three-point line or mid-range, right? But yeah, what are your thoughts on, yeah, just w- the approach that we've done and, you know, given all the context of the stats that I've thrown out of how just how much offense that we've brought in in a more versatile way that you can actually rely upon how do you see things shaking out and you've mentioned before that you know it's not about being the best team of all time by being top five in both categories but it's kind of trying to find that happy medium so obviously this year the Lakers don't have a ton of wings who have that glitz and shine of being a like lanky long tall wing stopper but if you just look at the Clippers over the last few years, they, they're the team that has all these crazy wings. They had Patrick Beverly. I kept hearing about what a juggernaut defense they would be, but look, they still ended up being really good defensively, top 10 in both of the last few years, but they weren't top five. They were ninth in defensive rating last year, eighth in 2019-20. While that's still good, it's not crazy elite. So what good is it to have these Kawhi Leonard and Paul George if at the end of the day you don't have an Anthony Davis, which is kind of my point of if you have that Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard defensive anchor, it may not matter so much how many of those Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, OG Ananobi type wings you have, as long as the crux of your defense starts with that center position. So yeah, well, first, what are your thoughts on the defense and then how the Lakers have approached um, I guess, just going more offensive and how you think those two will balance each other out. So I think, you know, it's so hard to tell what our defense is going to look like because the last two years in a row, we thought it wasn't going to be good and we were top five and last year we were number one with injuries, right? So it's like, who knows what Vogel is going to stir up. You know, all this said, I think we are going to be, frankly, another top five defensive team. Um, I do. I think so much of that is scheme. And I think we lost some guys, but we've replaced them. I mean, in some areas we've gotten better, right? Like Dwight Howard is an elite big defender off the bench. He's replacing Montrez who is average. Um, The main guy, right. That we lost like if you really want to point to two guys, I think most people would point to number one, Alex Caruso, who by the way, was not a starter. And like, yeah, he played significant minutes for us. Some of that was due to injury. And frankly, he became unplayable at points outside of the bubble, just because he couldn't like, you couldn't rely on him to do anything consistently on offense. Um, And KCP. And I think those guys we have at least somewhat replaced by adding at, you know, at least depth. I mean, nobody that we've added is going to be as good defensively for us as Alex Caruso was, right? But that said, I think THT is going to take a huge leap this year. That's going to be automatically a big plus right there. Um. I think Kent Bazemore is a very good defender, maybe as good as KCP. I think Ariza is solid, even in his age, right? Westbrook remains to be seen. I understand, you know, with Monk and Ellington, there are concerns that people have that are probably justified. None, I have no idea what what his deal is as a defender. But, you know, although it seems like we've had a massive roster shakeup, again, I think, like, 
even at this age, Trevor Ariza is probably, con- at least consistency-wise, like probably as good as Kuzma was. Um, yeah. Maybe even a little bit better. And that was the main wing defender we lost. And then it really, again, KCP and Caruso. And I think we've replaced KCP adequately. We have not replaced Caruso, but it, I don't know that you need somebody like that if if the rest of your team is... So solid, I mean, between AD, Mark, and Dwight, we have three, again, three of the best big men defenders in the NBA. And they all have things that they struggle against. Maybe Mark is not the best in space. Neither Mark nor Dwight are the best in space. But you have AD who kind of covers for that. You know, maybe LeBron and Carmelo, if they're playing more, certainly Carmelo, but even LeBron, if he's playing more four this year, not necessarily the best defensive option at the rim but you have Dwight and Mark to cover for that. You know, I think those types of things, plus, you know, we've added some wing depth with Ariza and Bazemore. I think those are going to be all fine. I guess the one thing I'm a mildly concerned about, right, is there are a lot of teams that have elite shooting uh, point guards. We, we're going to have to play Portland four times a year with Dame. We're going to have to play Golden State four times a year with Steph. Um there's a number of these guys around the league, right? Trey Young. I mean, so many now. In the past four years, we've sort of just had the luxury of you don't even have to think about it. You just slot in KCP into that spot and just be like, you figure this out. Like, good luck. We're going to send you on an island for 35 minutes and you chase this guy around. And so I don't think we have that anymore. But I think, you know, we still have so many guys who are going to be plus defensive players all operating on under Vogel's plan. And you know that from day one defense is going to be stressed again. Um, we've sort of replaced maybe, you know, obviously Russell Westbrook is not going to replace KCP or Alex Caruso in terms of what he could bring defensively, but he brings an aggressiveness that we frankly lack last year. He brings a toughness that Dennis Schroeder didn't have, um, uh, maybe toughness is the wrong word, but physicality, yeah. you know, gone are going to be those days of like Dennis Schroeder getting completely bodied into the paint and dudes just putting it up over him. Like Russ is going to bring that angle that we've lacked. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of focus this off season on what we've lost defensively, but not necessarily enough emphasis given on what we've gained. And Again, Vogel has shown through the last two years very consistently that he is will, he is able to adapt to whatever lineups we're able to throw out there. Um, and so that's why I think we're still going to be fine defensively, ultimately. Yeah, and I think in some scenarios, you can just have Kent, or not Kendrick Nunn, but Kent Bazemore become that KCP guy. If you implant it into his yeah. head, hey, we need you to stick on the perimeter and make sure you do not lose sight of you know, whether it's a pure three-point shooter or a guy like Dame who can, you know, hit threes at any in any capacity, you just have to stick on the perimeter and never get lost. Don't gamble too much. We'll have Russell Westbrook continue to do his gambling escapades because that's what he does. But you need to be the KCP where you always maintain sight of what's going on in the perimeter. Because like you mentioned, my biggest worry is us hemorrhaging at the three-point line. And also, if we close out too hard at the three-point line, those guys like Dame can easily step into the mid-range and drill that shot, right? Are we going to be chickens with our heads cut off in that capacity where it doesn't matter how good our anchor on defense is in the paint, 
if we get killed on the perimeter mid-range or three-point wise. So to close this episode, now talk to me about how the offensive end should maybe even help the defensive end because there were a lot of times last year where I was just like, okay, great, we're getting all these stops, but I feel like we're tiring ourselves out by not scoring on the other end because there is a psychological demoralizing aspect to that of never seeing the ball go in the basket because you don't have guys who can orchestrate an offense or get a shot for themselves and they still have to go, you know, lug their asses over to the other end and play tough defense. Great, they're getting stops, but eventually that energy on defense will wane if you don't have any momentum going for you on the other end, on the offensive end. And while there is that argument that, okay, if we're going to be such a highly efficient, high-powered offensive team and we're so good in that respect and we're playing at such an insane pace, then we, we will just naturally default have a worse defense. I, I buy that argument and maybe we'll care less about playing defense if we're literally just pouring on like 150 points the way that Russell Westbrook's Wizards were uh, last year, but to an even insane level that we just totally give up on defense. I understand that argument, but I think given Frank Vogel's identity as a defensive coach, I don't think it'll ever skew that far where we totally forget about defense entirely, you know, even if just by default being a better offensive team, we kind of let our foot off the gas pedal a little bit. I think Frank will still rein us in enough to the point where we're at the very least a 70-30 offense to defense sort of team. And going back to my point about offense energizing defense I just think with better offense it leads to a better baseline level of defense just purely forcing the other team to take the ball out of the basket because you made another bucket to me is good defense it allows us to set our defense up more times than not it allows us to feel good about ourselves um, and then you use that feel good momentum of seeing the ball go into the basket to pump you up on the defensive end and it's sort of this cyclical thing right and right. on top of that, I just think with the guys that we brought in, these physical kind of buff athletic dudes, I think that physical, powerful, smash mouth type ball combined with our added versatility on offense, whether that's versatility three-point shooting wise or versatility being able to play make for others and score on your own, I think and to add to that, the transition play we're bound to have, we're talking about you know having two or three freight trains running down the lane at any one time. I think that has a very demoralizing effect for other teams. I think we're going to pound teams to a pulp. And if we don't use our brunt force of bruising some guys up with our athleticism and, and physicality, um, the opposing team will feel it just by the fact that we're continuing to score against them in such huge bunches. And they're definitely going to feel that if they're, quote unquote, a good defensive team. Can you imagine if the Milwaukee Bucks, who are a you know objectively great defensive team, are getting rained down upon by us, whether it's by th- with three-point shots or just in transition. Like, that has a huge psychological effect on the other team. And so, in turn, I think we're going to frustrate and demoralize some of the best defensive teams because of our tough shot-making, because of the myriad of ways we can attack you, and relentlessly driving it into the paint, pushing the ball, knocking down threes, attacking closeouts, and being able to hit mid-range shots. Even posting up and isoing with guys like Mello gives you another angle that I don't feel like we had reliably last year as well. So just your thoughts on that, if you have any in addition. I think it's a big thing that we were missing last year, right? And and it was so much a part of the formula of our success the championship year was we were not, I mean, by all metrics, we were actually 
below average as a half court offensive team. And in the bubble in the playoffs, you know, Rondo certainly cleaned some of that up, but so much of our success that year, and we were the number one seed, like most of the year, um, was, you know, just completely based on us overwhelming guys with physicality onto the defensive end and immediately turning that into points. And it was crazy because, you know, we talked about this all the time a couple years ago, but, or I guess it was just a year ago, but uh, maybe two years ago, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, it's, we used to talk about this all the time and it was crazy that like we weren't in the top, I don't even think we were in the top half of the league in pace. Uh, certainly we weren't like top five or top 10 or something like that, but we were number one in, in, in fast break points. And it, you're right that it is demoralizing for a team to any time you make a mistake, you know, we're going to beat you up on the defensive side and we are going to instantaneously turn that into transition points. It happens so much with like the AD leak outs. And when you add Russ into the mix here, it just makes things so crazy. Cause now yeah. it's not, we're just, we're not so reliant on LeBron to do everything. It's like, we have this other guy who's literally like a 10 time all-star or whatever, who can take a huge part of that burden himself. Um, and like you, you threw out the numbers with him in, in terms of playing pace, you know, before. So playing with pace, uh, I really do think this team is going to, I mean, we're going to make you work so hard to score as we always do. But when we are able to quickly convert that into offense, it's again, a huge, huge, huge thing we were <clears throat> lacking last year. And we went from consistently destroying our, our opponents on fast break points to, having games where we would have zero, two, four, you know what I mean? And and I think getting back to the formula of success from two years ago is going to be huge for us. Yeah. And then, you know, again, as I mentioned, outside of, you know, making you pay for your mistakes on the defensive end and leaking out into transition and whatnot, again, it also has a psychological benefit for us to continually see the ball going into the basket because rising tide lifts all boats in the respect that if our guys feel good about themselves offensively, they're going to channel that on the defensive end. So whether or not they're actu they've actually been objectively good defensive players in the past, just knowing the identity of our coach, they're going to want to buy into being more rabid on the other side, I feel like. If they continually see, oh, we're having fun here, aren't we? Well, and the, good, and the nice thing about our roster makeup is LeBron will do whatever it takes to win. He's proven that throughout his career. He's 36. It doesn't matter. He's still a certainly, I'm not going to say he's an elite defender, but he's above average uh, for his position and for his age. And that says a lot for a guy who's 36 defending, historically one of the toughest positions to defend, right? So that... When he is bringing it, when AD is bringing it, Russ is the newcomer in town. So, you know, he's playing and he's obviously playing for a championship. So he's going to be bringing it like when those three, when your main three guys are like, they don't care about how flashy, whatever they're doing on offenses, how like swaggy they look and how, how many threes they're hitting. They just care about physically dominating their opponent that trickles down to the rest of the roster once you get guys like Dwight amped up and amping up, amping up the guys around him. Ariza has always been that type of energy player on defense. Bayes has been that type of energy player on defense. Like it could, I mean, that's really what you need to set the defensive identity for your team, right? We consistently see teams with guys who are really good defenders get cooked. Uh, you know, great example, defensive player of the year multiple times, Rudy Gobert. And obviously, you know, that's a 
maybe this is a misleading, a bit of an too easy argument, but just because you have the defensive player on the of the year on your team does not mean your team is going to be elite defensively. Mm-hmm. And we've seen teams where you look down the roster and it's like none of these guys are really historically elite defenders, but as a team, they defend very well. And so, you know, I I think it's going to work for us and it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to watch. I'm excited. The ceiling of this team is going to be crazy. You mentioned it like just being almost manic out there with like LeBron, Dwight. Westbrook. Oh, there's Monk flying in out of nowhere all of a sudden. You know, I I think I use the uh, meme of that girl who's like getting high on cotton candy and like, you know, her face is like, I feel like we could have a lot of those moments this season if everything's sort of firing and clicking on all cylinders offensively. And then we translate that defensively, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, With that said, that'll do it for our episode. We've gone on long enough. So yeah, I think we'll end it there. And uh, yeah, Tommy, I will catch you later. Peace. Peace. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.